Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Liz. Uh, can, I, can I start with uh, just a couple of complaints? Uh, see, I happen to know you did invite Hillary Clinton uh, to... Uh, <laughs> now, I, I, I obviously, when I found this out, I got in touch with the Secretary of State, who uh, apologises, uh, but says she'll be available on July the 4th. If, uh, <laughs> uh, and second, Liz, uh, I think, you know, quoting from the Declaration of Arbroath, that, that must be counted as stealing my best lines uh, in, this, uh, in this lecture. But nonetheless, thank you for the uh, introduction. And uh, it is, of course, a, a privilege uh, to give a lecture in honour of Hugo Young. Uh, at Hugo's memorial service, Chris, uh, now Lord Patton, said, The quality of what Hugo wrote and the standards he set for himself and others brought distinction to a profession too often demeaned by tawdry unreason. And one of the reasons for Hugo's excellence became evident five years after his death when the Hugo Young papers were, uh, were first published. They revealed the diligence, the accuracy of his working methods over the course of his career. Now, Liz was quite right. As any uh, self-respecting politician would do, uh, the first thing I did when I, I saw a, a copy of the Hugo Young papers was to look up my own name in the index. In the full 800 pages, it featured once. <laughs> but the context in which it appears once is fascinating and now perhaps a bit prescient. It's during a, a discussion with Donald Dewar in May 1996 in which Hugo reports Donald is saying, quote, people should not underestimate how fragile the union is in Scotland. He was surprisingly emphatic about that. When I pushed him to correct his sepulchral language, the SNP regularly got 25% in the polls. That was about their standard support across the country, but it could grow. Now, a couple of things about that. Hugo was actually saying what Donald uh, was saying to him. Donald, you never told me that, incidentally, in 1996, <laughs> but, but, no, but nonetheless, it's of, uh, it's of great uh, interest. I also like the word, use the word sepulchral. Uh, you know, meaning uh, alluding to uh, funerals and uh, coffins and, uh, and such. In fact, uh, a discussion between Hugo Young and, and Donald Dewar must have been one of the most erudite exchanges between journalists and politicians you could possibly get. Uh, I, I remember uh, some 14 years ago, that there was a story in the, the Glasgow Herald, as it was, in the front page, that some senior Labour Party politician in Scotland had the temerity to call the Calton Hill building a mere nationalist shibboleth. And there was a great search ensued to, to find out who this senior Labour Party figure was. I immediately accused Donald Dewar uh, on the grounds he was the only Labour MP in Scotland who knew what shibboleth meant. <laughs> so, between Hugo and Donald, <laughs> there must have been some fantastic uh, exchanges of, uh, of phrases and words. But in that exchange... Donald went on to predict that Labour would do well in 1997, correctly, but suggested that I, that's me, was waiting for the 2001 election uh, when there could well be a significant increase in SNP support. Well, although the statement was partly wrong about timing, uh, support from the SNP has advanced both in uh, 2007 and spectacularly uh, last year in 2011. <clears throat> now, my view is that the election result in 2011 uh, reflecting a recognition of the achievements of the, the first SNP administration, but also a vote of confidence 
in our optimistic view of Scotland's potential and a desire among people in Scotland for their parliament to have significantly greater powers than at present. Now that desire for greater powers is of course a key part of the, the context of this lecture. Uh, the future of Scotland is for Scotland to determine, but I recognise it's of great interest and potentially concern uh, to all of you. And therefore I welcome this opportunity uh, to speak about it in London. And in the next uh, month or two I'll be taking the opportunity to speak about it in Manchester and Liverpool and uh, various other parts of England. Can I declare my uh, colours as a fully signed up Anglophile? Uh, it was, after all, my Labour predecessor, bafflingly, who seemed to once spend uh, an entire World Cup sporting teams playing against England. I'm sure that Trinidad and Tobago very much welcomed Jack McConnell's support. <laughs> the views of people here have understandably, understandably, I think, not played much of a part so far in the debate in Scotland's future. I'm reminded of Cheston's reference to the people of England who never have spoken yet. Of course, the people of Scotland haven't spoken yet, or at least not conclusively. Now, England does not, nor cannot have, a veto in the debate on independence. But I suspect, I know actually, that the vast bulk of people in England freely, freely recognise Scotland's right to determine its own future. This week's research from the <coughs> Institute for Public Policy certainly suggests that people in England are, are waking up to the unsustainability of current constitutional arrangements. They are not sustainable because they are not fair. They are not fair to Scotland and they are not fair to England. Most importantly, I believe these relationships will be positive and much stronger when our nations are clear and equal partners. Now, given the events of the last couple of weeks, I want to start this evening by reaffirming the Scottish Parliament's right to decide the terms of a referendum on Scotland's constitutional future. But I also want to move beyond that question to say more about why I believe that independence is the most natural state of affairs for a nation like Scotland. And I'll close by making it clear that the social union, the social union, uh, which binds the uh, people of these islands, will endure long after the political union is finished. Uh, my contention, therefore, is that independence is good for Scotland, but also that independence for Scotland is good for England. First of all, I want to spend a moment or two reflecting on the astonishing, the increasing pace of change in Scotland. Perhaps it didn't change as quickly as Donald Dewar anticipated back in 1996, but nonetheless the pace of change is extraordinary. The last decade has embedded the Scottish Parliament as the focal point of public life and Scottish democracy. We now have a a Scotland bill changing by the day, overtaken by events, even before it reaches the statute book. The momentum and direction of the people of Scotland is unmistakable. It is therefore right that in 2014, people in Scotland should have the opportunity on to vote on whether to become independent. Now, during the last year's Holyrood election campaign, I made two key commitments in relation to the Constitution. I promised that in the first half of the New SNP administration, we'd work with the UK government to strengthen the Scotland Bill to give it economic teeth and job-creating powers. My second commitment is that we would legislate for a referendum, having made constructive proposals, hopefully securing additional powers during the Scotland Bill process. We would then stage a referendum on independence 
in the second half of the Scottish Parliament's five-year term. These commitments were endorsed overwhelmingly by the Scottish people, and I consider them to be binding. Now, the argument currently being adopted by some, people, incidentally, who have always opposed a referendum full stop, is that because independence is such an important issue, a referendum should be as quick as possible. I don't think that argument stands up to any serious scrutiny. It is precisely because independence is important that we intend all stages of the process leading up to a referendum, from the consultation on its enabling legislation to the referendum campaign itself, to take place over a timescale which allows the Scottish people to reach an informed decision. Then the further argument by some that Scotland's economy is being damaged by a supposed delay doesn't resonate with voters in Scotland who in the last few months have seen Amazon, Michelin, Dell, Gamesa, Avalok, among many others, announce major international investments in Scotland. As the uh, Financial Times said just two weeks ago, Westminster's quote pretext for accelerating the poll that uncertainty is damaging the economy looks disingenuous at best. As threats go, the risk posed by separatism are as a flea bite compared with the all-devouring Eurozone crisis. Uh, and this view has been endorsed by that great arbiter of accuracy in current United Kingdom politics, the Channel 4 Fact Check, which pointed out last week that international inward investment is now more successful in Scotland than any other part of these islands, including London. But in addition to attempting to dictate on timescales, the United Kingdom government also appears to want to close off discussion about another key elements of the referendum. As someone who strongly believes that independence would be preferable to enhanced devolution, I believe that the argument for independence could and would be won on a yes-no basis. However, as First Minister of Scotland, I recognise that there is a significant strand of opinion in this country who might want to consider an alternative for Scotland which lies between the status quo and outright independence. To consider an additional referendum question which takes account of popular opinion is simply being democratic. The fact that such an option might be popular is not a good reason for denying the people the right to potentially choose it. So the Scottish Government's consultation paper on a referendum, which will be published tomorrow, will encourage a wide debate on this issue, involving all of Scotland's political parties, but crucially also Civic Scotland, that is the organisations and communities which make up the fabric of the community of the realm of Scotland. Incidentally, Liz, the, the quote that you gave from the Declaration of Broke wasn't just by the, the Scottish Barnes, although it certainly was by the Scottish Barnes, it was also encompassed in the community of the realm which was a phrase that appeared for the first time in that period in, in Scotland. It generally had to encompass something which was beyond ability. It was about the whole nature of the country. Uh, similarly, the community of the realm of Scotland now encompasses more than the politicians who sit in the Holyrood Parliament, important though they undoubtedly are. It involves the civic Scotland, the organisations which make up the lifeblood of a, of a thriving, the heart of a beating heart of a community. So the community of the realm of Scotland must have the right uh, to comment and to, uh, to contribute to the debate on how we organise this most important vote in Scotland for 300 years. 
The paper will also make it clear that we intend the referendum to be overseen impartially and independently in a way that leaves no possible room for doubt about the integrity of the result. But our starting point in all of this is that the Scottish Parliament ultimately has the mandate to determine the referendum process. Westminster legislation which dictates rather than enables would not just be unacceptable to the Scottish Government, it would be contrary to the rights of the people of Scotland. Now, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, will campaign confidently for independence, not just as a, an end in itself, but as the means by which the Scottish economy can grow more strongly and sustainably, by which Scotland can take its rightful place as a responsible member of the world community, and by which the Scottish people can best fulfil their potential and realise their aspirations. For much of the, the post-war period, people in Scotland largely embraced the uh, the great social reforms which were implemented by Clement Attlee's government and sustained through much of the 1950s, 60s and 70s. National insurance, housing for all, the establishment of a national health service is commanded a consensus which spanned political boundaries and national borders. There is a view that <clears throat> some of these post-war institutions, perhaps the national health service above all, fostered a sense of cohesion and common purpose among the people of these islands. Uh, Professor Tom Devine of uh, Edinburgh University, for example, has expressed the explicit view that in the post-war period the welfare state became the, quote, real anchor of the union state, unquote. Now, I'm not sure that the <coughs> welfare state was, in truth, ever a direct consequence of the union. As the Nordic countries show very clearly, common aims and social policy don't require a common state. But it probably is the case that Scotland subscribed particularly strongly to these values of post-war consensus. And so there's a, another revealing account <coughs> about Scotland in the Hugo Young papers. And this is a, a discussion between Hugo Young and John Smith, in which John Smith volunteered with pride that Scotland had always been consensual, that there was this sense of community unriven by so much class segregation, without, as Hugo Young notes, seeming to see that this made his English task possibly harder. Now, I don't want to press this argument too far. The disparities in life expectancy, for example, between different parts of Scotland are just one piece of evidence demonstrating that Scotland needs to do far, far more to reduce inequalities. But John Smith's basic point, <clears throat> that egalitarianism is a strong driving force in public life in Scotland, is undoubtedly true. It's why we recognise that some forms of social protection work very well, that the constant urge to reform can be, in the wrong hands, code for attack. It's why policies which exacerbate inequality, remove basic safety nets, are always likely to encounter fierce opposition in Scotland. It's why anyone who accepted the Union partly because of the compassionate values and inclusive vision of the post-war welfare state may now be less keen on part being part of a Union whose government is in many respects eroding these values and destroying that vision. When I was in uh, <coughs> Liverpool last year for an appearance on Question Time, I, I got a, an extraordinary warm response from the studio. Perhaps the strongest support I got was when I made a, a plea to the audience not to let the three biggest Westminster parties destroy England's National Health Service. Just one of many issues where the Westminster class are out of touch with the people of England the classes out of touch with the masses. And looking at the problems of health reform now, 
I thank heaven that Westminster writ no longer runs in Scotland on health issues. But the looming issues of welfare reform exemplify why Scotland needs the powers to make our own policies match our own needs and our own values. The Scottish Government policies, I would submit, attempt to protect many of the values which would be dear to any post-war social democrat across these islands. For example, in the public sector, we have promoted what we call a living wage of £7.20 an hour. We have made a conscious decision to provide certain core universal services, rights or benefits, some of which are no longer prioritised by political leaders elsewhere, such as free university tuition, free prescriptions, free personal care for the elderly, and a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies across the public sector. We do this because we believe that such services benefit the common wheel of Scotland. They provide a sense of security, of well-being, of equity within communities. Such a sense of security is essential to a sense of confidence. And as we have seen over the last three years, confidence is essential to any resumption of economic growth. And the social wage, as we call it, sets out our offer for people who want to live in Scotland regardless of their background. And we will provide a secure, stable, inclusive society. And by doing so, we will encourage talent and ambition. Scotland will be a place where people want to visit, invest, work and live. Now, achieving this has required some difficult decisions. And I'm often struck in, in government how people concentrate on what has been done but don't concentrate often on the processes which led to getting there. Uh, the departmental efficiency savings of Scotland have been far, far more rigorous than they've been in Whitehall. We have, in common with, uh, with uh, Whitehall, uh, an effective freeze in much of the public sector pay. But I would submit these are policies which are easier to implement if the broad spectrum of your policies clearly have fairness at their heart. The social wage exemplifies one reason why people in Scotland want additional powers for their parliament, the fact that they largely like what we have done with the powers that we already have. <clears throat> I've been arguing that uh, in the limited area of powers which are available for discretion by the Scottish Parliament at the present moment, uh, that some of these powers have been uh, used in ways which uh, have already been copied elsewhere and should be copied elsewhere, not because I don't think we've got lessons to learn from other countries, indeed I think we've got massive lessons to learn, uh, but because it does indicate that even as a, a new parliament, that the Scottish Parliament has achieved things which were capable of replication and copying, things of which jointly the parliament, not just the SNP, but the parliament should be proud. Uh, for example, the, the smoking ban in public places was suggested by an SNP MSP, initially resisted by the Labour Liberal administration, but then adopted. It didn't take a, a generation, a decade, or even a year for people to, say the, to see that the Parliament had made the right decision. It took about a month or two. People, by and large, just about everyone actually, abided by the new law. People adapted, and now next to nobody would choose to go back. And there are other examples of how even the constrained ability of Scotland to make independent decisions has had a beneficial effect on wider policy debates. We are currently championing minimum pricing for alcohol, a policy which I understand, admittedly from the Daily Telegraph, so I'm not sure about the full extent of that uh, reliability, but understand it may be copied uh, elsewhere. Uh, we established the Scottish Futures Trust as a, a way of promoting long-term infrastructure investment without resorting to the wastefulness of the private finance initiative. Uh, 
The UK Government's current call for evidence and infrastructure investment options suggest that it is interested in aspect of the Scottish Future Trust approach. Now this, these innovations benefit Scotland because they can respond to specific Scottish problems and circumstances but also benefits the rest of the UK and potentially elsewhere by providing a precedent for policies which other countries can then adopt or not depending on their circumstances. I actually believe that at our best an independent Scotland could be a beacon for progressive opinion south of the border and further afield. Addressing policy challenges in ways which reflect the universal values of fairness are capable of being considered, adapted, implemented uh, according to the specific circumstances and wishes within the other jurisdictions of these islands and beyond. That, in my submission, is a more positive and practical Scottish contribution to progressive policy than sending a tribute of Labour MPs to Westminster to have the occasional turn at the Westminster tiller particularly in the circumstances of the Labour opposition policy increasingly converging with that in the coalition on the key issues of the economy and public spending. In passing, and just in passing, can I reflect that Labour might be doing better with Scottish with, in passing, can I reflect that Labour might be doing better with English opinion if they were to consider offering an alternative rather than a substitute for current policies? Now, the problem with Scotland's current constitutional settlement is we cannot uh, innovate as much as we would like. Policy choices made in Westminster, whose parties whose democratic mandate in Scotland is negligible, are constraining these choices made in Scotland for which there is an unequivocal mandate. It's worth remembering that in 1999 comparatively few additional powers were granted to the Parliament in Scotland that had not previously been devolved to the Secretary of State. Scotland. Now, the shift from administrative to legislative devolution was, of course, huge. It was momentous, enormous. But it still left Scotland with fewer powers than the German lender, most American states, parts of Spain, such as the Basque Country, or within these islands, the Isle of Man. The economy is currently where this deficiency is felt most deeply. In Scotland, my party's manifesto for last year's election made it clear, understandably, the economy would be the top priority. We are still deeply aware, as are many places in England, Wales and Ireland, of the lasting damage done by the mass unemployment of the 1980s, which left a legacy of alienation, ill health, hopelessness, which endured long after economic recovery took hold. For that reason, the Scottish Government has given a guarantee to all 16- to 19-year-olds of a training opportunity or education place for those who are not in a job, apprenticeship or full-time education. We are doing everything we can within our current budgetary limits to safeguard capital investment in Scotland. But it's against a context where direct public investment in the UK economy is being slashed in real terms by about a third between last year and 2014-15. This Plan McB, as I've called it, a plan which we articulated as suggesting to the UK Chancellor that it should be adopted, is endorsed by our Council of Economic Advisers. Because, uh, as I once said famously, that we do not have monopoly on wisdom, we've appointed a council of advisers, uh, including Professor Joseph Stiglitz, Professor Francis Ruane, Professors James Merleys, to advise on our economic strategy. But however careful we are at directing spending towards areas which protect welfare and promote economic growth, we cannot escape the consequences 
of the UK government's macroeconomic policies. Now, nobody seriously denies that the UK government's budget deficit needs to be tackled. However, the scale of the austerity measures decided upon is proving counterproductive, particularly in the cuts to capital spending. It doesn't require a Nobel laureate in economics, although we have two in the Council of Economic Advisers. It doesn't require a Nobel laureate to understand that it's difficult to sustain economic recovery on export-led growth when your major export market is enduring significant problems. If there's a, a double-dip recession, and at best that is a real risk, it will not only be the fault of the Eurozone, it will be something which Westminster has helped to manufacture by not adjusting policy quick enough to meet changing circumstances. But we still see regular assertions that Scotland would be weaker or more impoverished if it were to be independent. Now, many of these statements are straightforward scare stories. For example, sources close to the Chancellor of the Exchequer warned last week that an independent Scotland would not be allowed to use the pound. Now, of course, the interesting thing about that suggestion is not just that they're economically illiterate, since sterling, last time I checked, was a fully tradable currency. In other words, the UK government has absolutely no power to stop an independent Scotland or anyone else using sterling if they so chose. But more importantly, why would any sensible person wish to stop Scotland and England sharing a currency? Or Saturday, Sunday's Daily Mail reported William Haig, William, sorry, I beg his pardon, Sunday's Daily Mail, Scottish Daily Mail reported William Haig as threatening that if Scotland became independent, British embassies would no longer promote Scotch whisky. <laughs> that, I uh, think, was scraping the bottom of the cask. Now, incidentally, for, for the foreign sector's uh, benefit, we should know that when receptions promote Scotch whisky or any other goods that British embassies are charged uh, to Scottish enterprise by the Foreign Office, we actually have to pay for the <laughs> receptions at the present moment. But I, I rather suspect that the whisky industry would, in any case, get by without the promotional efforts of the British Foreign Service. <laughs> if I, I could adapt uh, an old Scotch ditty, how nice it would be if the whisky were free and the embassies full up to the brim. <laughs> now, the Daily Mirror, not to be outdone, tried to argue that if Scotland voted for independence, the Edinburgh Zoo pandas might somehow be seized by the UK government. <laughs> now, I always try to give the, my hosts an exclusive. Can I give the Guardian this exclusive? That I've decided to grant Tianqin and Yangguan political asylum. <laughs> reflecting, of course, that the United Kingdom government did not contribute a single RMB uh, to the costs of the panda's arrival in Scotland's capital city. I hear occasionally from the Prime Minister that he's just about to make a positive case for the Union. On the evidence of the last two weeks, I think that positive case is still in the, the drawing board. The fear-mongering about constitutional change is nothing new, but it is disappointing to see such an approach being adopted. And therefore, as an antidote and a counterpoint, may I attempt to present independence for Scotland in a way which is positive about Scotland and positive about England. Firstly, I, I question the credibility of the current set of United Kingdom leaders as far as the people of this country are concerned. And I mean by this country, both Scotland and England. I uh, have this, uh, the leadership ratings of Messrs Cameron, Clegg and Miliband 
according to the Sunday Times YouGov poll. According to this, their popularity stands at minus 22%, minus 59%, and minus 70% respectively in Scotland. That is minus 70% for Ed Miliband, including 81% who thought he was doing uh, badly, and 11% who thought he was doing well. These are all dismal assessments of UK political leaders in Scotland. It's true in each case they are significantly worse than their UK figures. However, it's also true that the UK figure for the leaders of the Conservative, Liberal and Labour parties are also all in negative territory. I'm told today that given uh, the ICM poll that The Guardian has achieved its highest ever sales among Conservative MPs in its entire history. But perhaps the Conservative MPs, while celebrating their five-point lead across the UK in The Guardian poll, should reflect on the fact that this does not necessarily mean the Prime Minister is popular, merely that he's less unpopular than the other political leaders. The unpopularity of Westminster leaders in Scotland is largely, I think, based because it's about 20 points more unpopular in Scotland than it is in the corresponding figure in the UK. It's largely based, I suspect, recently on their ham-fisted interventions in the debate on Scotland's future. But their unpopularity in England is based on their inability in these tough times in particular to present a positive vision for the future of England. Talking down to a country is never a good idea, and failure to present a positive vision to a country is always a bad idea. In truth, it is absurd to suggest that an independent Scotland would struggle to make its own way economically. On current figures, Scotland would have the sixth highest per capita GDP in OECD as an independent nation. The United Kingdom currently ranks 16th, and incidentally, without Scotland, would still rank 16th per capita. As Norway, Sweden, New Zealand demonstrate, small nations, many small nations cope better with the financial crisis than larger ones, such as the UK, Italy or Spain. But all Western nations, large and small, have been affected to an extent. What independence would do is give us the tools in Scotland, corporation tax or alcohol excise duty, which we could use to get on with the job of promoting recovery or improving people's lives. In international relations too, Scotland would benefit from a voice of its own. In Europe, perhaps the defining theme of Hugo Young's journalism, the recent veto used by David Cameron has significantly weakened, in my estimation, the UK's reputation and influence for few evident benefits outside ratings in the YouGov poll. When Jose uh, Manuel Barroso delivered this very lecture in 2006, he posed the question of whether the United Kingdom and Europe wanted to, quote, shape a positive agenda or return to sulking from the periphery. The recent answer provided by the UK government is probably not the one that President Barossa had in mind. And so Scotland, as an independent nation, would play an active, responsible role in the international community, contributing on issues where it could, such as climate change, but without delusions of grandeur. Climate change provides a very interesting example. The Scottish Parliament achieved legislative competence over climate change by accident. Part of uh, Donald Dewar's genius in devising the Scotland Bill of 1997 was to specify what was reserved as opposed to what was devolved. Climate change in 1997 was not seen as a, an issue worthy or important enough to be reserved, and therefore it ended up being devolved. But in the Scottish Parliament's world-leading Climate Change Act, passed unanimously across the Parliament without dissent, has shown that a Parliament trusted with big issues 
can rise spectacularly to the occasion. And incidentally, I don't agree with the Council of Despair that some on the English left have of their prospects for mobilising support on an English basis. As already said, the privatisation of the health service is just as unpopular in England as it would be in Scotland. The illegal war in Iraq was resisted by English opinion just as it was by Scottish opinion. Indeed, people will know and understand, and probably, well, certainly will know, I've never had all that much time for the former Prime Minister Tony Blair, largely because of the war in Iraq. However, before he got carried away into believing that Britain's role in the world was to ride shotgun on the Deadwood stage, he did, in 1997, sweep a commanding majority on England on the hope of progressive reform and mobilised opinion in this country in a way which neither Neil Kinnock or even John Smith ever truly managed. Now, much of what I've spoken about inevitably relates to distinctions between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. I mean, that's inevitable as you make a case for independence. But I want to stress also the areas of common interest which will endure after independence. Current constitutional arrangements <coughs> mean that policy difference often becomes squabbles, especially if they involve money or, or constitutional issues. In fact, we've seen a fair amount of evidence of that in the last couple of weeks or so. Andrew Fletcher of Saltoon addressed the, the Scottish Parliament in 1706, before it was adjourned for 300 years. He observed, quote, all nations are dependent the one upon the many, this much we know. But he also warned that if the greater must always swallow the lesser, we are all diminished. The argument would be that incorporation can foster resentment and grievance, independence encourages mutual respect. Independence for Scotland would leave us free to work together in the many areas where we do share common values and interests. The most meaningful bonds between the countries of these islands have rarely in truth been about the 650 members of Parliament at Westminster. Indeed, it's always seemed to me deeply ironic that the, the right of centre parties in particular base so much of their unionism on the tax and spend powers of the Westminster Parliament. When Scotland becomes independent, we will continue to share close ties with our neighbouring countries. Some will be institutional. Scotland will continue to share a monarchy with England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Some will be cultural. Scotland will still discuss EastEnders, watch the X Factor, enjoy the Grand National and Wimbledon, particularly once Andy Murray gets round to winning it. <laughs> I also assured personally Jeremy Paxman in an interview I did, which will be broadcast later this evening, that. Uh, he will still be a, a hero of late-night television in Scotland after independence. It was a political promise. <laughs> Some will be economic. We will continue to trade freely within the European Union. People will still move jobs from Manchester to Glasgow and back again. Some will be practical. At the height of last year's riots, for example, Scottish police sent officers to help the police services down here in England. During last year's water crisis in Northern Ireland, Scotland sent hundreds of thousands of litres to Northern Ireland. That level of cooperation would continue because it's the sort of thing that good neighbours do. The British-Irish Council already provides a model of how all of the people of these islands can work together on issues of shared interest. 
Just a few days ago in Dublin, we discussed youth employment. The British Irish Council currently includes two independent states, three devolved governments and three island groups. Does anyone here believe the Council would look massively different with three independent states rather than two? The Nordic Council provides another model of a forum where neighbouring countries gather to cooperate with each other. And the European Union, on the many occasions when Scotland agrees with the rest of the United Kingdom, will have greater collective influence and more votes operating as two nations rather than one. On areas from energy grids to emergency policing requirements, from fisheries policy to defence cooperation, from telecommunications to transport links, Scotland will work with its neighbours for the common good. But most of all, in addition to these institutional, cultural, economic and practical links, Scotland shares ties of family and friendship with its neighbours in these islands which can never be obsolete and which I expect to continue and to flourish after independence. And when you consider these shared economic interests, cultural ties, friendships and family relationships, one thing becomes clear. After Scotland becomes independent, we will share more than a monarchy and a currency. We will share a social union. And it won't be the same as a restrictive state which no longer serves the interests of either Scotland or England. When Her Majesty the Queen visited Ireland last year, she spoke warmly of the ties between the United Kingdom and Ireland and stated that, quote, these make us so much more than neighbours, they make us firm friends and equal partners. I like the phrase, firm friend and equal partner. And it will be true of Scotland too. Now, my ambition for Scotland is to enter the global community of nations, to participate in that community on a basis of equality, responsibility and friendship. We won't seek and have a nuclear deterrent. That's not the sort of power we seek. We seek only the power to make a positive contribution to the world to improve the well-being of our people. When the uh, United Nations was founded, it had 51 member countries. Now there are almost 200. As recently as 1990, Europe had 35 countries. Now it has 50. Of the 27 countries that currently make up the European Union, six of them did not exist as independent states before 1990. Currently, the United Kingdom is an incorporating union where one nation will always prevail simply by virtue of its size. It seems increasingly like an anachronism in the modern age. And independence, the right to participate as an equal on the international stage, appears more and more like Scotland's normal and natural state of being. I quoted Chesterton, that quintessentially English writer, earlier. I hope you'll understand, especially given the date, that I want to close by quoting Scotland's bard, Robert Burns, nationalist and internationalist. I thought of a, a number of possibilities across the canon of Burns's work. Uh, for example, his uh, timeless description of the multi-party UK government of his day, yon mixty maxty queer hodgepodge, the coalition. <laughs> Another of his songs, Safe on Kiss and Then We Sever, also has a certain resonance, although I may not sing it to the Prime Minister anytime soon. But ultimately, surely it is a line from Burns's great egalitarian poems that best sums up the likelihood of independence. For all that and all that, it's coming yet. For all that.
to get a fix on history when it's actually passing your nose. But I have a feeling that the lecture we've heard tonight is a piece of history. Uh, thank you very much indeed, First Minister. Now, there's a room for the journalists and curious people, and the First Minister has agreed to take questions. Please ask questions, don't make statements, or I will be ruthless and vicious. And I think, because I'm sure that there will be hundreds, I, I, what I'm going to do is take three at once. And so we'll try and get as many people in as possible. Um, a microphone will come to you. Would you kindly say who you are? There's a gentleman there and a gentleman there. So if you could line up both mics and whoever gets it first, off you go. Who are you, please? Um, it's uh, Eddie Bone. I'm the chairman of the Campaign for an English Parliament. Um, briefly, I'd just like, like to give you a compliment first, Alex, in saying that you've probably got more understanding of constitutional law and theory than both David Cameron and uh, Nick Clef have, who believe uh, that the union will survive if... Uh, Scotland um, goes independence. You talk about friendship tonight. Um, actually, it really talks about friendship on Scottish terms. A really good indication is Scottish oil. Sorry, I do apologise. You might make a mistake. Of North Sea oil. And, you know, will, will you actually agree now that you will discuss the issue? Will you agree that actually international convention really shows that coastal waters... Um, you know, half of the oil probably belongs to England, that most of the gas belongs to England. Will you agree here and now that you, in a sign of friendship, sincere friendship, that actually you will belong to a binding, a binding judicial adjudication, potentially even in The Hague? Will you, agree to, will, will you actually agree to that so we can actually clear the money issue out? Thank you very much. There was a gentleman here who won't look at me, but I'm trying to get the microphone to you. No, it wasn't you. Who else is next? Hands up. This lady here. Hi, uh, Kate Devlin from the Herald newspaper. Um, First Minister, what would you say to people who um, say that the serious negotiations between the Scottish Government and the UK Government should be done now um, on things like oil and debt, so that um, whenever the Scottish people go to the polls, they know exactly what it is that they are voting for? I think uh, it's much better to have this debate uh, and ask people in Scotland to vote on the principle of uh, independence or any other status they wish. And the, the reason for that is, is twofold. One is that uh, I was very struck by the previous experience. I mean, I've been knocking around politics for a fair amount of time, and I, uh, I, you know, obviously I barely remember the 1970s. I, a child, babe in arms in, uh, in these days, but, but nonetheless I was conscious enough to uh, understand the process that was going on. I was at university at the time. Uh, and of course what happened in, uh, in the 1970s uh, is because the referendum uh, was kept till after, it was a post-legislative referendum, uh, then those who opposed it had every opportunity and incentive to block, to tackle, to frustrate, to introduce 40% rules, to do a whole range of devices which frankly were unworthy of uh, a sense of fair play or parliamentary uh, democracy. Uh, in contrast, in 1997, uh, what Donald Jew realised is what you should do is offer a proposition, a, a white paper, a, a concept to people and ask for, for support. And of course, once the majority, once the support was obtained for that principle, for that white paper, Kate, uh, then the parliamentary process became very simple. The, the bill was passed in in virtually no time at all because people accepted the democratic will of the people. Uh, and if you try to do what you suggest, then what you'd get is a, an incentive for blocking and tackling. If you do it this way, then what you'll get is once the people make the decision, uh, then, the, uh, uh, then the process, I believe, will be amicable and, uh, and, 
and follow the people's will, because people wouldn't have an incentive to be unreasonable, to block and tackle. And in that spirit of reasonableness, both the distribution of the oil assets of Scotland uh, and indeed the distribution of national debt will be settled according to international conventions and, uh, and international law. Uh, and incidentally, we'll make no claim on English gas reserves or the newly acquired discovered gas that I read about all the time, uh, but they'll be settled according to international law and these conventions are, uh, are well understood and well stated, as are incidentally the, the questions of inheritance of the, the national debt, which uh, will be thanks to the performance of, uh, of uh, previous chancellors at Exchequer will be very considerable. Uh, and therefore, there are pros and cons on both sides. But you settle them according to convention and international law. But settling them after the will of the people has been declared it will assure a much amic more amicable outcome than trying to do it the opposite way around. John uh, One of the founding fathers of the European Union, Max Constant, used to say, it's wrong to say that the European Union consists of big countries and small countries. They're all small countries in the modern world, but some of them don't realise it. And I wonder in that context whether as part of your uh, independence campaign you will be taking some time uh, to reach out to the many countries of comparable size and scope in the European Union to give them a clearer idea than they currently have about what Scotland's European ambitions are. Thank you. First Minister, Anna French, author of Devolution Matters. You um, seem to suggest in your speech that um, an independent Scotland will keep the past early. Presumably that means that you're happy to be tied to the decisions that the UK government makes regarding the future of the pound, including interest rates and possible accession to the euro. Can we get a microphone back there, please? The, um, the previous, Paul Mine is a oh, very junior Treasury Minister in the last government. Um, the uh, previous question has seven and a half my, my question, which I think is a, is, is a, is a very important one. Can I just expand, uh, First Minister, on the uh, economic issue? Do you expect that Lloyds Banking Group and Royal Bank of Scotland, who are both currently incorporated and headquartered in Scotland, to continue to be in Scotland? Or would they be free to reincorporate elsewhere? And who do you believe will be the lender of last resort to support the banks if they continue to be based in Scotland? I will take the questions in turn. We're already engaged uh, in positive discussions with uh, uh, just about all member states in the, the European Union, large uh, and small. I mean, uh, uh, in terms of uh, saying what ambitions are and saying what our policies are uh, and putting forward uh, uh, what I hope is a very reasonable uh, prospectus. Uh, and Scotland has uh, a great number of friends uh, across the, the European continent reflected in the European Union. Uh, secondly, the the point I was making in the, in the speech, Alan, is that you can't stop people using a tradable currency, and therefore I was interested in the argument which surfaced not from the Chancellor directly, but from some Treasury sources that somehow Scotland could be banned from using sterling. I mean, our policy is to, is to use sterling until such time as people of Scotland de decide otherwise, until such time as the economic interests would dictate otherwise. You could use it in a, a variety of ways. Uh, you could use it as uh, Benelux countries once did, as, uh, as a monetary union between Belgium and Luxembourg. Uh, you could use it just by using it, a sterlingisation policy, if you like, uh, or you could indeed use it by having a, a currency pegged to the pound sterling. But I think using sterling, um, basically because it would be of substantial interest to both Scotland and England, given the tradability between the two countries, to be in the, the same currency. I think it would, uh, it would produce economic efficiency. I was asked uh, by a journalist uh, last week, I think, uh, about, you know, isn't that like the euro? 
Uh, no, uh, it's not like the euro because the underlying problem of the euro is to try and uh, to try and reconcile the uh, uh, the divergent economies of the Ruhr Valley and the, the southern tip of Greece with a dramatic difference in productivity between the two. If you look at the current GVA figures, uh, you'll see that Scotland's productivity is 99.2% of the UK average at the present moment. Indeed, its export productivity is higher. Uh, so I don't see any serious uh, concern with that. Uh, I think companies will headquarter rather than incorporate. And I'm always interested in where companies' headquarters are, because that's where the decision are, uh, bases are, uh, according to what's the most competitive place to be. Uh, as long as I've been uh, in politics, Paul, in terms of looking at the Scottish economy, in fact, before I was in politics, uh, there's been an underlying issue about the loss of headquarter operations from Scotland. Uh, so you think to yourself, how can you reverse that, uh, that particular trend? Uh, you can't do it by legislation. You can't force companies to headquarter or incorporate, for that matter, in your, uh, in your country. You can only do it by having a competitive base in which to, they wish to base their headquarter operations. And I think corporation tax has been used effectively by a number of small countries uh, in order to encourage that basis of, uh, of headquarter operations. So I'd be more interested in the real jobs that headquarters bring uh, than brass plates, for example. But in the context of you had a, a Benelux-type currency union in Scotland and England, then the lender of last resort would still be the, uh, the Bank of England. Uh, to answer Alan's question directly, yes, monetary policy would still be set by the Bank of England, but as it is at the, at the present moment. Because there's no great divergence in terms of the productivity in the Scottish English economy, I don't regard that as a huge difficulty. Uh, what independence will give, of course, is substantial discretion over fiscal policy. Uh, to take one example from the current situation, uh, we have uh, uh, an ambition for social and health reasons to introduce a minimum pricing for alcohol in Scotland. Uh, that, I think, is the right thing to do. We have a serious problem, a very, very serious problem. England has a serious problem as well, incidentally, and Scotland's problem is more serious than that of England. If you introduce it as a minimum pricing policy, it's the right thing to do. It will bear substantial social dividends. Uh, then it has a disadvantage that it doesn't earn any extra revenue. If you introduce it in terms of an excise policy, then you can introduce both a minimum pricing to help with your social policy and you can generate additional revenue. The first thing Scotland can do at the present moment, that's introduce minimum pricing. The second thing, changing excise, we can't do. It's a simple, easy example to understand why control of fiscal policy gives you a great deal of discretion that Scotland doesn't have. Alex, we have met before once or twice. The, <laughs> what I want to say to you and ask you is this. Tonight, what you've described is not independence. It's a form of federalism. You want to keep the Queen, now the Bank of England too, our embassies, part of the Defence Forces, BBC. Now, fine, they might go without cost to you, even though I doubt it. But the important point is this. Why not give up the narrow nationalism that you preach and come forward, yes, a narrow nationalism, come to the conclusion that the best reform would be a reformed House of Lords as a federal party. And in that, in that, you would then not have to break up what has been, by any standard, the world's most successful political, economic and social union that brought peace to these islands. You must come to Scotland immediately uh, and communicate with those in Civic Scotland who are producing the Devil Max question in the, in the, in the uh, referendum. I haven't heard the House of Lords aspect to it uh, yet, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, see what, we'll see what develops from there. Can, look, the, 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 can I take the points in turn? 
Her Majesty the Queen is Queen, I think, 16 countries at the present moment. Uh, are any of the other 15 not independent countries? Of course they are. And if you argued in uh, any of these countries that somehow they weren't independent, uh, you know, that Canada wasn't an independent country because the Queen's the head of state, then they would find that a very uh, difficult proposition uh, uh, to understand. I think there are, last time I checked, about 60 countries in currency unions at the present moment. They are independent countries. Yes, of course, they don't have independent monetary policies, but they're independent countries. But of course, remember, you know, independence is about having the discretion and sovereignty to do what's best for your country. Now, I could just offer a, a couple of ideas as to why independence might be, be preferential to the... Uh, uh, to the uh, the House of Lords type federalism that you uh, that you put forward. Incidentally, given the statements of some members of the House of Lords recently, I'm not so sure <laughs> we could trust the House of Lords to be too judicious. But, for example, whether or not you should send your forces to fight an illegal war in Iraq might be something that an independent country has discretion over. I'm not certain if in your, uh, your federalist vision uh, that would be uh, something that would be countenance for policy discretion. Whether or not to have the largest concentration of weapons of mass destruction in your territory is something which an independent country can decide on, but a, 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 a country which is not independent can't. Incidentally, I, I, I'm sorry you missed my, my reference to the United Kingdom embassies. I, I was really being playful about uh, the threat that they would no longer serve whiskey at the receptions. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know what they'd serve. I mean, this is not my threat. This is the... Uh, the Scottish Daily Mail, admittedly the Scottish Daily Mail reporting uh, the, uh, some uh, thoughts of, uh, of William Hague. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck by the thought that, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the French, although incredibly proud of their, their wonderful uh, uh, spirit of brandy, actually drink more whisky than they do brandy. Uh, I suspect the same thing might be true of the UK embassies. I, I was thinking kind of having you know, trading-orientated key embassies promoting Scottish goods uh, as part of the process of being an independent country. Right, we've got Richard Norton-Taylor, then the person there, and then somebody there, and I think that's probably going to be the lot, I'm sorry, unless you're very quick. Richard Norton-Taylor of The Guardian, you touched very briefly on the nuclear deterrent and Trident, but what would happen, how would you dismantle Trident, Faslane, and what would happen, I hope this is a simple question, and what would happen to the Scottish regiments in the British Army? Well, I, I was struck by the, uh, the comments of the Defence Secretary the other day saying that uh, we'd have a bill for the clean-up co costs of, uh, uh, of Fast Lane. I, I do think a lot of folk in Scotland will find that a bit much to keep a nuclear deterrent, which has never been greatly loved uh, by people in Scotland uh, in our country for 60 years, and then say we'll present you with a bill for the clean-up costs. I mean, I think Philip Hammond uh, uh, was not speaking as, uh, as someone who's going to engender a great deal of support in Scotland for that position. I mean, the position of independent Scotland would be that we wouldn't have use for a, a, a nuclear deterrent. A country of five and a quarter million people is not going to want to have a concentration of weapons of mass destruction. We wouldn't try to be awkward or difficult about it. We are, as I understand it, the coalition government has a, has a committee, even at this very moment, uh, uh, surveying the evidence uh, uh, for what should be the UK's next independent, quote, nuclear deterrent. Uh, the, uh, no doubt the prospect of Scottish independence will uh, prevail on that committee to come to a more sensible conclusion than otherwise uh, they might do. Although I have to say, I think even for the Liberal Democrats, given their previous uh, statements on a Trident replacement, they might find that uh, an obstacle course uh, quite difficult to jump. 
Uh, as far as serving in the, the rest of the UK Armed Forces, uh, again, I think there's 22 nationalities serve in the UK Army at the present moment. Every Commonwealth country, uh, a citizen, has the right to serve in the, in the United Kingdom Armed Forces. Uh, so that uh, would continue. A Scottish Defence Force would uh, uh, be based and, uh, and look at the, uh, the priorities for Scottish Defence and be based on, on that system. But you still, as, as of the last time I checked, there were still Irish Guards as well as Gurkhas in the United Kingdom Army. But there's nothing special or different about that. I mean, that's the same uh, status and position as, uh, as other Commonwealth countries have. You know, everything I try to say in the, these things is, is, you know, Scotland, certainly this part of Scotland, and I have to knock down the suggestion of narrow nationalism. I mean, narrow, I don't think so. But everything we're trying to put forward is we're putting forward, obviously, a, a position which asserts the Scotland's rights and Scotland's determination to be a, a more normal country. We don't want to do it in a way which causes needless upset or difficulty. I would never, ever speak about England in the way that a number of UK government ministers speak about Scotland. I would never come to England and say to this country, listen, you're not capable of running your own affairs. I just wouldn't do it. I think it would be a laughable statement to make. And I, I do think it should be possible in this lecture and in others uh, to kind of raise the, the tone of uh, the conversation which we're having in Scotland about our future, uh, but nonetheless has a substantial impact on this country. And furthermore, uh, I've got this theory which is based on a fair amount of evidence that if you speak to the Chestertons, plain people of England, uh, you'll get a, a much uh, friendlier response to the idea of Scotland standing its own two feet, raising its own money, discharging its own spending, uh, than in some of the Westminster politicians uh, who seem almost to have a, a resentment, a proprietorial resentment, uh, when uh, Scotland gets as uppity as to believe there could somehow be a normal, independent country conducting its affairs in friendship, but in a position of equality with its neighbours. Uh, do you have a mic? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, um, I want to ask, you said that the Scottish Government um, wouldn't accept any conditions from Westminster on the referendum. And when you be too vague about what those conditions might be, if you read uh, Michael, uh, Michael Moore's draft section 30 order, it explicitly rules out a Devo Max question. So I suppose I'm asking, how committed are you to Devo Max? Would you uh, prefer a single legally unchallengeable yes-no question on independence or a DevoMax two-question referendum potentially, which would be susceptible to litigation from any unionist punter that may have money to burn and an axe to grind? What would be your preference one way or the other? Well, my preference is for Scottish independence. Therefore, there will be an independence question on the ballot paper. But as I stated in the lecture, I, I'm not, as First Minister of Scotland, going to foreclose on the options which might be canvassed by the Scottish people. Incidentally, you should reread the consultation document. You'll find that one of the questions that are asked is how many question or questions do people want. And I'm talking about the UK government's consultation paper now. Surely the United Kingdom government wouldn't have asked that question if it's already made its mind up as to what the answer was. You're not telling me, <laughs> you're not telling me that a Westminster consultation would be predetermined. <laughs> you know, a long time ago, uh, a guy called Canon Kenyon Wright uh, put a kind of similar question when, when Scotland was talking about devolution. In the context of that, if you remember that uh, the Labour and Liberal parties in the Constitutional Convention, which Kenyon Wright led, uh, had been arguing for devolution. The Conservative Party said no, despite the fact we're in a low position in Scotland, we, you know, we're not going to have it. 
Uh, and he, he, he countered it by saying, you know, uh, about a, a still boy in Downing Street, uh, talking about Margaret Thatcher, uh, saying no and responding by we are the people and we say yes. Uh, the people in Scotland now have the great advantage of having their own parliament, uh, which gives rather a foundation to a democratic expression of opinion. I, I don't think uh, Westminster politicians are in, any longer in a position to artificially restrict the options available to the Scottish people. I don't agree with the legal analysis of the UK government. Incidentally, their analysis contains things which are inconvenient for them, even in their own terms. Uh, and I think the position, if indeed the community of Scotland wish there to be such a question, is quite different uh, from what uh, Michael Moore postulated. And the answer to his own question it might be different from the one that he was envisaging. But, you know, we'll publish the, uh, the uh, consultation document for Scotland tomorrow. And I think, you know, whatever people think about it, you know, whether they're for, against it, or don't know, I suspect most reasonable people will look at that and say, well, that's a pretty reasonable way to go about things in an orderly, progressive fashion. It's a genuine consultation with the, the community of Scotland. And if the community of Scotland determines on something, uh, then I think perhaps a lesson of the the last uh, 12 years or so, is that is probably what will happen. I'm not certain, uh, well, I am certain that the days of Westminster politicians with a shaky mandate in Scotland, actually a non-existent mandate in Scotland, determining the means by which Scotland will decide its own future, I, I think these days are gone. Last question from over there, please. My name's David Goodhart from uh, Demos, the think tank and Prospect magazine. Uh, can, can you tell me, First Minister, how you think Scottish values diverge from English values? Can you also tell me, um, uh, rather, I, I read an opinion poll uh, that was taken in Scotland recently which discovered that I think about a third of people support independence. Um, if independence made them £500 richer, uh, the number supporting independence went up to 62 or 65%, I think. If it made them £500 poorer, the number supporting independence went down to 15 or 20%. Can you tell me whether, clearly you believe an independent Scotland would be richer, but if it was poorer by any significant amount, would you still support independence? Well, I, uh, I don't think you argue for independence basically on... Uh, I mean, the justification of independence is national self-determination, and, and, and that is a better thing. I happen to believe Scotland will be better off uh, on the basis of the... It wasn't actually an opinion poll, incidentally. It was a social attitude survey. It was an interesting question to have in the social attitude survey. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I've got my leaflets uh, already written. You know, £500 richer, that's, uh, that'll be the leaflet uh, on the basis of the social attitude survey. I, I think economic confidence uh, has always been at the heart of, of this debate. See, what I would take from that, incidentally, is, you know, that if the, the Union, if the present position was a satisfactory state of affairs, you wouldn't have that sort of conditional support for it. Uh, now, you might argue that the, the other way, but, you know, if it does actually mean that the, the, the case for the Union is based on an illusion that Scotland is somehow less than capable of turning its immense natural resources into a sustainable, profitable economy. Uh, 
I, I think a, a case which is based on that is doomed to failure because it's based on a negative which happens not to be true and a positive will overcome that. I think in politics the only time that negative campaigns win is if they're up against another negative campaign, in which case the most negative campaign wins. Uh, in politics, a positive campaign will always prevail over a negative one. Uh, and as far as the, uh, the first bit of the question is concerned, I think there are plenty of values which are uh, shared uh, in common, not with between Scotland and England just, but with humanity. You know, I think there are a whole range of things which most people in the world think are, are, are excellent things for a society to, to aspire to. However, I do think that the exchange between Hugh Young and John Smith, there was something in it, which is what I, I read out. I mean, I think there is a particular premium in Scottish society expressed through the politics. There's an egalitarian principle which runs very, very strong. Now, does that mean that people in England don't believe in egalitarianism? No, there's plenty of folk in England believe in that. Does it mean there's not a streak of radicalism in, in English society? Does it mean that England doesn't have a range of rich traditions? Of course it has. Uh, but... Uh, as I mentioned, that uh, perhaps there isn't all that much sign of English politicians mobilising that tradition uh, at the present moment, and maybe that's a task that uh, Demos and, and others uh, uh, are, uh, are engaged in. So, you know, nothing in what I've said or what I've done says or argues that Scottish values are superior or better uh, than those of any other country. I've never argued that. But just what I won't tolerate is the argument that, that somehow this nation of Scotland, and Scotland most certainly, by any, by any merits as a nation, uh, that this nation of Scotland is not capable of, uh, of running its own affairs in an independent country as so many other nations are. We probably would be the best endowed independent nation coming to independence in history, as it happens. Uh, but uh, the reason for being independent uh, is the fact that nations, by and large, on the whole, uh, are better governing themselves than letting somebody else do it for them. Um, I want to apologise to everybody else who wants to ask a question. I know the First Minister wants a bit of time to mingle afterwards, and so I'm now going to ask Alan Rusbridger, Editor-in-Chief of Guardian News and Media, to come and thank our lecturer. There are, there are two reasons to keep meeting in the memory of, 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 of Hugo, and, and as Liz reminded us, this is the, the eighth time we've done it. One is simply the opportunity to come together once a year as uh, friends, family. It's lovely that Hugo's brother and children are here, uh, and uh, former colleagues, just to remember what a great man uh, Hugo was, and just to drink in his memory uh, and remember a man whose stature, I think, uh, as a journalist, continues to grow. Uh, and the other is to discuss the things that uh, he loved discussing. Um, uh, unfortunately, that's a pretty wide field. It included the, the law, the media, uh, Europe, uh, America, the world, uh, and, and British politics. Um, uh, and we've had uh, eight really uh, wonderful lecturers. And I think there was something about Hugo, who was, uh, after all, a very stern judge, uh, of uh, the, the people and the things that he wrote about that slightly puts the speakers on their mettle. Uh, and they feel they're, they're, they have to raise their game uh, and uh, write something uh, that is going to be really considered and thoughtful. Uh, and I think that's true of all the eight lectures that we've, uh, we've had, that, that people have come. You can see they put a lot of work into it. 
uh, and they felt that this is an occasion that they must use to say something significant. Uh, and we've had that uh, in spades tonight. As Liz said, we've, this has been, uh, a, 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 it's had the feel of, of, of history tonight. Uh, I think there are two things that Hugo um, would have enjoyed about tonight. Um, one is the fact that this is the third lecture in a row uh, where the lecturer has come along and claimed the uh, mantle of progressive politics. Uh, the first was David Cameron, uh, and for him uh, it underpinned his vision of the new conservatives. Uh, the next was uh, Nick Clegg. Uh, for him it was the Lib Dems who had overtaken Labour as the true party of progressive politics. Uh, and tonight it's uh, Alex um, suggesting tonight that an independent Scotland uh, could uh, uh, become a beacon of progressive politics uh, for the rest of us to follow. So I think Hugo would have enjoyed that competition and no doubt he would have passed uh, his verdict uh, in, in his inimitable fashion uh, weighing up those, those claims. Uh, the second thing I think he would have enjoyed tonight is the subversive nature of tonight's lecture. Uh, Alex Salmon has already uh, torn up the old rule book of Scottish politics. Uh, he started 2012 by doing the same uh, in Westminster. Uh, and that's the reason why uh, this room is packed tonight with people uh, who were listening so attentively to what he had to say. Uh, his talk tonight has challenged uh, our thinking about the Union, uh, about the role of nation-states, uh, and about the way out of economic certainty. I think it would have gripped Hugo, uh, and uh, I can sense tonight that it gripped the room tonight. So thank you, Alex. Thank you, Liz, for, for uh, chairing the, the question so uh, elegantly. I'm right in thinking that there's now more alcohol to be had, uh, and uh, Alex is, is uh, going to be there to, to uh, talk to anybody who wants to come up and challenge him uh, even further. Uh, and the only thing I want to add, uh, after eight male lecturers uh, in, in uh, honour of uh, Hugo, is that we promise next year it will be a woman. <laughs>